Welcome to the Sifted Podcast, recorded at Dream Factory, the content creation house for startups. I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor, and today I'm joined by Anissa, our startup life reporter, who's filling in while Amy is off. Thank you for joining us today, Anissa. Hey, Eleanor, I'm excited to be your co-host for the day. Yay. So at Sifted, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast every week, we discuss top news coming out of Europe's tech and startup sector. We share opinions. We speak to journalists breaking the stories. And we also give a little peek of what's happening inside our newsroom. Yeah, so today we're going to be looking at some of the most interesting stories that have been coming out of European tech this week. We'll be hearing from Christian Tooley. He is the founder of iCubed Investing. He's talking a little bit on why VCs need to be more inclusive towards the queer community and why that is so valuable for both VCs and the community itself. And finally, we'll be speaking to Sifted Central and Eastern Europe correspondent, Zosha Vanet. She has a sneak peek into what the European Commission is planning for its new innovation plan. It's trying to help Europe catch up with US and Chinese tech so we don't fall behind. So, Eleanor, as you know, I've been gallivanting around this week. So catch me up. What's been going on at Sifted this week? Yeah, so Sifted HQ has been a little bit hectic this week because Amy's been off. So me and digital editor Tom have been holding down the forts. But what's been going on this week? Uh, Something maybe interesting to note this week is we've had tons of announcements from emerging fund managers. So these are VCs that are raising their debut fund or first time fund, um, which is interesting because at the same time, we're talking all about the slowdown and impending economic slowdown as well. So it's it's interesting to see kind of this holdover from when from when things were really good last year. Obviously, these managers were fundraising last year. And so now they finally close their funds and they're announcing. But obviously now with valuations down a little bit, it could be a really good time for them to start investing. Yeah, it's exciting and interesting to hear that given everything we've been hearing about the economic downturn, things don't seem to be slowing down going into summer. So let's talk about the news, Eleanor. What's going on this week? Yeah, so I think one huge thing that people in the tech community have been talking about for the last couple of months is that crypto winter is upon us. Um, Crypto assets have lost more than $1 trillion this year. And the latest startup to feel the chill is Austrian crypto trading startup Bitpanda, which said this week, um, or actually it was late last week, um, that they're going to lay off a third of its 1,000 plus team, which is equivalent to about 370 people. Obviously, super tough times for people working there, but the founders had some interesting, you know, insights and things to share when they wrote in a blog post to staff about their decision to shrink the company. They said that their team's growth rate had been too high and that they had reached a point where more people joining didn't make the company more effective, but created coordination overheads instead. I think it's really interesting We're seeing all of these letters from VCs to their portfolio companies about how to weather a potential economic downturn and a slowdown in tech investing. And one of the big things that VCs say is, you know, if you have to cut people as a way to extend the amount of cash in the bank and help your company survive, you know, cut big and and do one cut and then be done with it. Um, And it seems like, you know, Bitpanda really you know, stuck to that. And obviously cutting a third of the team is like a huge thing, but it seems like they, you know, were very decisive about this and and also really honest about 
why they needed to do that and and the fact that they had made some mistakes in how they were structuring the organization. Thanks, Elena. I thought that bit of the story was quite interesting, how they actually took responsibility for the growth. I feel like we haven't seen that so much in some of the stories coming out from people being fired during the downturn. So let's stay with the hiring and firing topic. We've had an interesting story this week. There's this company that's raised some money who are trying to stop companies not hire badly. Why is this like such a big issue? Yeah, so I mean, I know that lots of people that listen to this podcast are founders or operators who are hiring people all the time. And so they acutely understand how costly it can be for an organization when you make a bad hire. You know, that can be someone that's super talented, but just doesn't fit in the organization or, you know, there's not a way to really make sure that their skills are used. And some research has shown that one failed hire can cost a company over 180k. So obviously, you have to rehire someone, you have to find someone new, which is extremely expensive. So this company, a London-based hiring platform, ScreenLoop, um, which raised 7 million this week in seed funding from Stride VC, is actually trying to help companies avoid making those bad hires before it happens. So they're doing stuff like giving post-interview analytics and getting feedback from candidates so companies can know, you know, where in the process candidates might drop out, where there's a mismatch, and how interviewers can ask better interview questions so they can really get to the heart of, is this candidate right for the company or not? Okay, and one more story. There's a new fund in town from uh, the founders of Wise and Sonkick, and they've got some other quite big names behind it. They've launched something called Plural. What do you know about this fund, Eleanor? Yeah, so it's interesting to see um, Plural emerge this week. Obviously, Tavit and Ian Tavit is um, Tavit Hemgricus founded Wise, and Ian Hogarth founded Songkick. They're, you know, some of Europe's most prolific angel investors. They've been investing as individuals for a really long time, but now they're formalizing that into a VC fund. And it's interesting. I've heard from a lot of VC investors that like this is kind of an existential threat for them in a way. Like these founders and ex-founders and operators who know exactly what it's like to scale a business and and how hard it is. These are the kind of people that the next generation of founders really want on their cap tables. So that's a strong differentiation point. Um, They've raised a 250 million euro fund, and they're going to be investing in early stage startups. Um, But I'd be interested to hear from you, Anissa. You know, you have a founder operator background, also investment experience. Like, what is this? What do you what do you think when you see announcements like this? Founders getting into the VC game? It feels like it's about time. It's been really interesting to see over the last year or two, a lot of angels who have had these big exits, putting in a lot more money into funds. Obviously, Estonia has seen that in quite a big way. You know, I have a soft spot for the Estonian startup ecosystem. So it's quite exciting to see this formalized into a more, I guess, standard traditional VC format that is cross-European. And they're saying they're going to have 10 investors from the beginning and they're all going to be operators they have this really interesting name for these investors they're calling them unemployables and you said to me at the beginning like Anissa obviously you're a founder operator and that's exactly how I feel I feel like I am unemployable and what do you do once you run a startup obviously I'm nowhere near as successful as Tavit and Ian but that feels like it represents where I could potentially go uh, in my career. So I love I love the name. I love what they're calling their investors. 
I'm not sure you quite agree, Eleanor. No, actually, like, Amy refused to use this word in the piece because, like, when we're writing something, it needs to be clear. We need to make sure that our readers are clear that these people are investors. If we put, like, yeah, they're going to be joined by some other unemployables, it's not really clear what these people are doing in this fund. Um, So for me, it seems a little bit, like, uh, hokey or kind of, like, marketing speak. I know it can be very difficult to differentiate in the tech world. So if you can find a new word to call someone, then good for you. But I don't know. For me, it sounds a little bit like marketing spin. Yeah, completely get that. Although still love it. And I would wear a t-shirt with it on the front. (laughs) You should write to them. Maybe they'll get you one. So for our first interview of the day, we're joined by Christian Tooley, the founder of iCubed Investing, a platform to foster community, connection, and capital for LGBTQ plus founders and investors. Christian was featured in a story we ran this week on why investors need to work to make VC more inclusive to LGBTQ plus people. Christian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. So good to have you with us, Christian. Um, You coined this term called intersectional investing. And I guess you say it's a new way to think about diversity in the tech ecosystem. Could you explain to us a little bit more about what that actually means and how it works in practice? For sure. Yeah. So I guess um, the reason I coined it is that I saw an evolving trend in the startup and venture ecosystem that was going beyond just impact investing, focusing on the outcome and also beyond just DE&I. And I guess what it means in practice is that you're not just investing for returns, but you're investing for impact and investing in the individual. And because the former, which is the individual, has greater returns and impact when they're intersectional. In sum, intersectionality is rooted in academic discipline, um, originally to highlight the plight of black women of color, coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in New York. And it's come to explain how individuals who belong to various marginalized communities experience multiple levels of inequality. So it's understanding that you can be female, black and queer, And that will mean your levels of marginalization are higher. And that intersectionality may create a number of additional issues to you. And it's begun to enter the business and investment discourse because there is a byproduct that is a positive externality that your intersectionality can become your superpower. And the greater intersectionality a founder has, the stronger they resonate, the stronger they innovate, the stronger they empathize. And that creates a high chance of success for big returns and and positive impact. So I'm particularly focusing on LGBTQ+, but within that, um, a queer person's intersectionality may include their race and ethnicity, their socioeconomic background, their gender. And that whole trend is, is where I'm seeing the innovation and impact become even stronger. As Eleanor mentioned, you're the founder of iCubed Investing. Could you explain to us a little bit more about what that is and what it does? And also, why iCubed? Does this have to do with the intersectionality? <laughs> For sure. So I'll, I'll take the, the latter one first. So um, iCubed actually stands for investing in intersectional incredibles. So that is a concept we've come up with to describe that particular innovation and resilience that one's intersectionality can foster. And our whole venture is around intersectional incredibles that are queer, which is why I launched iCubed, because I've been working in innovation, investment and intersectionality for several years. And I saw this systemic gap 
not just at an economic level, but also at a political and community level. So what we do in practice, um, as you mentioned in the intro, is the three Cs. So the first C is community, and we're building grassroots-led city chapters across EMEA. So we're having one in London now. We have one in Berlin. We're going to open up uh, Emerging Queer VCs one as well, which will be global. The second C is connection. So this is where we actually act as a referral platform queer founders will apply to us we have a rigid model that we've created looking at various different metrics that we will do an initial like high level due diligence on then we'll share it with our investor network to spotlight them and give them an opportunity to invest and the last c which is capital which will have some more exciting announcements we've sifted in the next few months so i won't give too much away but this is essentially us trying to gain more ownership and drive capital flows and have like queers invested in queers. So that's that's our long-term aim. So you can probably make some inferences from that without me giving the whole story. I think as a sector in the tech sector and VC sector, people have become more aware over the last few years of the challenges that are faced by women and people of colour especially. And there's been a lot of work to change that narrative and to change the numbers, whether they're effective or not is a different conversation. But we seem to be more ignorant about how the LGBTQ plus community is facing challenges in the industry and especially how they are seeking investment and what barriers that raises. What do you think people should know to be able to support that community? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. I think because it's a hidden intersectionality, the main thing is their subconscious bias and Big term, but avoiding their heteronormativity. So language and semantics is very important. So when you're talking to founders, don't always assume, oh, wife, husband, gender neutral language and acknowledging like certain microaggressions as well, because how you carry and express yourself can lead to queer founders either suppressing their identity or trying to fit into the norm, which means they try and project behavior of those who hold the capital to get a chance to be invested in. When people suppress their identity, it can lead to them essentially having identity crisis, struggling with their mental health because they're going against natural grains in their personality, in their body movement. And this goes everything from how they walk into a room, how they use their hands, how they talk, all of these small microaggressions of conformity can lead to them essentially suppressing who they are. And also, I think it's important for particularly investors to understand that queer in venture capital isn't just a tick box exercise. So if you invest in a in a cis gay white man, it doesn't mean you've, you've tackled all the boxes. Because often in this space, when we do look at LGBTQ plus venture capital investing, they would end up getting the funding, they'll end up dictating the norms. And there's data out there that speaks to this. If you just look at the US, comparing LBT women and GBT men, um, women still raise less. So it's not just about looking at queerness, but understanding the different nuances when you throw in gender and, and people of colour, which is what intersectionality was founded on in the 80s, looking at black women versus white women in the feminist movement. That makes so much sense. Um, and I think some of the things you talked about, you know, in terms of breaking down those biases, those are even things that happen once a founder has gotten their foot in the door, right? 
But how can actually investors queer their deal flow and, and find these communities that might not even have the opportunity to knock on the door in the first place? So obviously, plug, firstly, sign up to iCubed, number one, because <laughs> we're the only ones doing this in this space. Secondly, it's really important to make sure those with the decision-making power are actually on your investment committee. And this is something that I have some annoyance on. There's, there's lots of VCs without giving names out there who do office hours, who will hire interns and associates, um, which is great. It's awareness. But the random associate working at XYZ firm isn't on the investment committee. They can hold an office hour, but are they actually going to say, let's put five million in with this queer founder? No. So having queer voices on your investment committee, ensuring you have mentors and advisors within the community, not just during June, Pride Month. This is timed aptly because it's end of Pride Month. Um, so don't assume, don't dictate, listen and empower. And also understand that you're probably not going to find the opportunity to queer your deal flow through usual spaces. So a lot of these entrepreneurs may not actually have the network or expertise and may not be tapped into the standard spaces like this Sifted, for example. I mean, I'll share this widely, but there may be some queer entrepreneurs out there who've not even heard of Sifted, but they're doing a great job as well. And I guess the final point would just be reconsider how you measure success. Obviously, returns are important, but if you look at impact as well, there's more studies that show it's more sustainable long term to look at metrics beyond just monthly reoccurring revenue. And it's important to understand that it goes beyond the, the standard measuring factors. Super powerful. Um, I just wanted to ask one more thing of you, Christian, which is you made the great point, which is like, yeah, we're, we're coming to the end of Pride Month, right? So all of the rainbow logos come down, right? And we go back to how we were before. So how can what's your call to action to investors as we move out of this month? Just short and sweet. Keep your Pride logos up. Keep engaging with the community throughout the year. We're not a, a fad for 30 odd days a year understand that you need to constantly be investing in the community even if it's not just founder-led but we're a community that constantly needs support because despite the fact that in a lot of countries we have same-sex marriage there's still countries where we can be killed for being who we are and if you want to throw the business lens on it where the startup scenes are booming and growing are often in emerging economies where it's still very, if not the most difficult space to be queer. So yeah, keep the conversations going. Talk with me, talk with founders, join IQ, help us do research, build more data around this. Data is monarch. And yeah, keep waving the flag 365 days a year. I love that. Thank you so much, Christian, for sharing with us today. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. For our final story today, we are speaking to our Central and Eastern Europe correspondent, Zosha Vanet, about an exciting story she's been working on this week. It's about the European Commission's plan to try to supercharge European innovation to try and keep up and narrow the gap with US and China's innovation. Zosha, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Hello. Hi, Zosha. So you saw an early draft of this plan. What's the aim here and when is the actual plan going to come out? Yeah, so what I've seen is a leak of the strategy that the commission is going to publish on July the 5th, so next week. So everything that we've seen 
can potentially change until next week. But according to the people who have been working on this document, we understand that not many, not many things are actually going to change and what we saw and what we reported is going to be announced next week by the European Commission. So this strategy is, is not the law, it's not the regulation, it's nothing binding. It's like a plan, a roadmap that Brussels is setting up to sort of show what it is planning to do to help European startups to grow and compete globally with startups from the US and and China, basically. Super interesting. Um, And I think it's really important to make that distinction. Like it's not law or anything. This is just their roadmap. And in that roadmap that you're talking about, they have outlined five pillars to support European tech. What are those pillars? Yeah, absolutely. So there, uh, so the first pillar is about building this pan-European innovation ecosystem. Then the other one is about retaining and training new talent, especially in deep tech. Then the third one is about improving the existing policies and sort of coming up with new measures, ways of measuring the progress of EU innovation. Then the fourth one is about creating more flexible and more startup-friendly regulatory frameworks, like, for example, regulatory sandboxes. And uh, the final one is about improving the access to financing. Super interesting. And I think that the focus in this roadmap on deep tech is really interesting to pick up on as well, because this is specifically an area where Europe lags behind the US and China. So in the roadmap, they talk about training more deep tech workers. What does the draft say about actually achieving that? Yes. So basically, the EU has always been very strong on research. The problem has always been sort of commercializing this research. So the Commission is really hoping to sort of catch up with this new wave of innovation, the deep tech innovation, which is actually based on very complicated academic research and making sure that this research just doesn't just stay in academia, but goes higher up to sort of to materialize as businesses, basically. And to do that, the commission is hoping to train up to one million new deep tech staff across the EU. And it's also planning to set up different schemes for internships and trainings for female leaders. That makes a lot of sense. The other thing that was talked about in this roadmap is improving access to financing, which is obviously top of mind for many founders, especially in deep tech. What are some of the really concrete suggestions and potential actions that officials in Brussels are looking at implementing in order to improve that access to financing? Yes, so so the commission is proposing to facilitate certain rules that for now are making it more difficult for uh, for founders to get money. For example, it's planning to reduce the cost of new equity across the EU. But then the commission is also very hoping and betting on the outcomes of the activity of this so-called European Innovation Council Accelerator. So this relatively new body that sort of acts like a VC with the European money and European funds. So this accelerator is basically tasked with scouting the best deep tech European startups 
and providing them with with equity. This is the first time the commission actually does it. So far, it's only been dealing with grants, and now it actually invests equity. There have been some problems with the delays. So let's see how this whole new concept plays out. Awesome. And then just a quick final question, Sosha. You've spent quite a bit of time reporting on Brussels, reporting on you know European regulation and policymaking. What's your reaction when you see a document like this? Does it give you any hope? Like, how binding is this? Uh, that, that, that's a great question. So I think that the strategy like this is a great sign and signal for the European startups that there is someone at the commission at the EU level who is taking their concerns seriously and someone is looking at how they could improve the European ecosystem, basically. And I know from the startup associations in Brussels that they have been very satisfied with the work they've been doing with uh, the European Commission and Commissioner Maria Gabriel. They feel heard. They feel that their recommendations have been taken on board in this particular strategy. But at the same time, this is still the EU and EU policymaking. It usually takes crazy amount of time to have something actually done. The Commission can propose the law, it can propose recommendations, it can propose the guidelines, but at the end of the day, it's up to the EU governments to actually implement those rules. And I would be a little bit afraid that too much time will pass from the moment of the adoption of the strategy until we actually see the outcomes of the strategy in this real life. And this is something that startups might be a little bit concerned about. Amazing. Thank you, Zosha. I'm looking forward to reading more pieces about this kind of policymaking and what's going on at the European Commission from you. Thank you. Thanks. This episode of the Sifted podcast was recorded at Dream Factory, a content creation house for startups based in Shoreditch. They've kindly offered Sifted readers a discount code, which gives you £300 off the £3,000 yearly membership. All you need to do is quote Sifted 300 when you book a tour or apply for membership. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find all of our coverage on sifted.eu. And you can also find all the articles that we've been discussing and mentioning in this episode in the podcast description. And finally, I guess we should give a little plug to the Sifted Summit that's going to be happening on October 5th and 6th in London. Search for it online. I think it's summit.sifted.eu. And if anyone's interested in grabbing a speaker slot or attending, all of that information is on the website. As you know, I write the Startup Life newsletter. So if you'd like to hear more from me, you can sign up to Startup Life at sifted.eu as well. It comes out every Wednesday. But you can also follow all of us on Twitter and all of our coverage, which is Sifted EU as well. Thank you for joining us, Anissa. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye. <laughs>